happened to stand-up comedy in America is, in a certain way, a lot like what happened to the car industry. In the 1980s, stand-up went from being a kind of handmade, small-scale affair to full-fledged mass production, a network of comedy clubs across the country, TV shows, HBO specials, an entire comedy channel on television. It was comedy in every home, comedy in every pot, comedy in every garage. Choose your own tired metaphor from the 1930s here. But as demand for stand-up comedy increased, it outstripped the supply of quality product. And as happens in any industry where you get this supply-demand imbalance anywhere in the world, people started cutting corners, going for the easy thing. Comedians who were performing during that period will tell you how clubs settled for cheaper, less experienced comics, how comics were encouraged to play to the lowest common denominator. And so clubs closed. They didn't make it. But before the flood of imported Japanese comics arrives on these shores, comics who are more efficient, smaller comics, comics who can go further on the same joke. Again, (laughs) you at home, fill in your own tired cliche here. Before all that happens, out in Los Angeles, one group of American workers takes to the stage each week. American comics bravely trying to turn the tide in their own industry. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. This is, of course, your weekly program documenting everyday life in these United States through whatever means and tactics seem appropriate. And, you know, on this program, most weeks we choose a theme and we bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on the theme. Documentary stories, monologues, found tapes, occasional radio plays, anything we can think of from a variety of different kinds of performers. But today, today we are going to try something different and we're going to devote the entire show to just one thing. A very unusual, actually a kind of unforgettable set of comic monologues out in Los Angeles over the last few years. Let's get some of that music back in here. Yeah. Out in Los Angeles over the last few years, a little experiment in comedy has grown up called Uncabaret, run by a woman named Beth Lapidus and her husband Gregory Miller. And the rules of Uncabaret are that no comic is allowed to tell a story on stage that he or she has ever told before on stage. So there's a kind of spontaneity built into the whole thing by design, a spontaneity that's usually lacking in stand-up comedy. And every Sunday, five or six writers and performers get on stage, and mostly what they talk about is what's happened to them over the course of the last week. And this may not sound like much, but it has evolved into its own genre, somewhere around um, diary, reportage, cultural commentary. And one of the most remarkable stories told at Cabaret was told in installments over the course of about a year by Julia Sweeney. Now, you may remember Julia Sweeney from Saturday Night Live. She performed there for a while. She was best known for a sketch called Pat. And the joke with Pat was that Pat was this character where you could never figure out, was Pat a man or a woman? And then after Pat on TV, there was Pat the movie. 
which apparently didn't do very well. And from October of 1994 through August of 1995, Julia Sweeney told stories at Uncabaret about something that's possibly the least likely subject for stand-up comedy, cancer. And you can actually hear her in these recordings get self-conscious about the medium in which she has chosen to tell this story, about how odd it is to be doing comedy on this subject. But the stories themselves constitute such an unusual, really remarkable human document, partly because she's going through these horrible experiences, you know, the same week that she's telling us the story of it, that we're going to devote our entire program to this today. Today's uh, program will proceed in two acts. Act one, Julia's brother gets cancer. Act two, Julia's diagnosed with cancer herself and treated. Some quick caveats before we begin. These tapes are made off the soundboard at Uncabaret, and the sound quality isn't always the greatest. Also, sometimes you'll hear laughing and offstage comments during these monologues. Those are by the MC at Uncabaret, Beth Lapidus. This first bit is from October 23rd, 1994. And, you know, part of being sick is dealing with everybody in your life when you are sick. And a lot of the early stories that Julia Sweeney tells about cancer are about her family. Her brother moved in with her to be near the cancer treatment center early in his sickness. And her parents moved in soon after. Okay, my parents are staying with me this week. And when I say this week, I mean it's just the first of many weeks. <laughs> um, they keep saying, now we've got to start planning the Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> and then, I, then my mom goes, why are you crying? <laughs> and I go, oh, I have, my eyes are watering. <laughs> I have this weird problem with my sinuses. <laughs> It's a special feeling to be in your mid-30s and have your parents moving in with you. Okay. Um, I haven't revealed why my parents are here for so long until this time. And I'm trying to think very hard about how the most hilarious way I can get this across. But, um, <laughs> oh, please be with me tonight. All right. Um, so, briefly, um, there's five kids in our family. I'm the oldest. And my brother, who's the fourth child, um, got lymph cancer. <laughs> Hold for laughs. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> it's a very tragic, uh, terrible situation, although he's doing very well, and um, he is at the UCLA Cancer Center. <laughs> oh, and um, every day he has radiation, and every other day he has a spinal tap and spinal chemo, and every three weeks he has the big chemo. So... My parents, okay, so that's all you need to know about this is that I am with my parents, but in a very trying situation where I can't really yell at them for the small annoying things that they do, which I would do normally because of the, you know, largesse of the total situation. <laughs> and yet for you, I can fetch a little bit. All right. So <laughs> my mother, so anyway, suffice to say, we're at UCLA Cancer Center every day for several hours. All right. Um, my mother, who is, by the way, the same age as Dustin Hoffman, they were born on the same day. <laughs> Keep this in mind. Every time we get on an elevator, she acts like it's a miracle invention that she's never encountered before. 
And you can imagine how many times we get on elevators in a given day. Many elevators. And every time the elevator comes, she, well, every time I get on the elevator, even if it's just she and I getting on the elevator, I immediately push the door open button because it takes so f***ing long for her to get in the elevator. And every time she goes, oh, oh. When the elevator arrives. And then I go in and push the door open and then she goes, oh. And then she takes a moment before she, you know, goes over the chasm between the hallway and the elevator itself, that little metal thing, and hurry up because the doors are going to close automatically. God. And then she always gets in, and then she looks up like, oh. And then when we go, she goes, And then when they open, she goes, oh. It's like, I really don't think Dustin Hoffman does that. And... How many millions of times have we been on elevators together? A billion. Ugh. All right. So um, the other thing is my mother, she doesn't, she's from that generation that thinks that doc, you would never get a second opinion about anything because doctors know everything. And also she believes that all doctors have the same amount of knowledge in every area. So... <laughs> We're talking to the lymph specialist, and then we'll be walking down the hall, and there'll be, like, a group of doctors. We know because they're men. And, um, and they're not rushing around looking very caring. That's the signal. And, um, and then she goes, um, there's some doctors. Go ask them if they know about lymph cancer. And I go, uh, we're talking to the lymph cancer specialist in the country. I think he knows the most about lymph cancer. I don't know what these doctors do. And she goes, well, I got the home phone number of um, Dr. Nishimura, um, my old OBGYN. <laughs> and I was thinking you should call him and ask him about Mike's condition. So I go, <laughs> you know, I really don't think a gynecologist who's been retired for 20 years <laughs> is going to know that much about this. Okay, but you wonder what's dad doing? Um, he reads, he reads like he just buries himself in reading. <laughs> and then my dad is a diabetic. Hmm, weird. And, um, then my brother also, who's now living with me also, um, he gets, he gives himself shots every day for his blood counts. And so there's just syringes hanging around my house. And so like a common thing for me is like, okay, who left their syringes on the kitchen table? Dad? We have to throw them away and break the needle. Oh. All right. <laughs> all right. Okay, so this is all an introduction to last Thursday. And then I get to the Pope, so just wait. Okay, so we're in the doctor's office. Um, and um, Mike, who's doing really great and is doing one, you know, like responding really well to the treatment. But he's had so many spinal taps that they can't get into his spinal column anymore. So <laughs> the doctor is in my mom. My dad's reading about the plague in India because that's a good diversion. <laughs> and um, my mom is, you know, looking at the doctors and saying, now he looks single. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this doctor comes in and he says, you know, Michael, um, we can't get into your spinal column anymore. So we're thinking about putting a shunt in your head. And um, my brother goes, what? And, and I, he goes, a shunt. And I go, a shunt, like an artificial opening to the brain. And, um, and Mike goes, well, where would this shunt be? And the doctor goes, well, the best place.
place we found it to put it in the forehead. And Mike goes, if you think I am going to get a faucet put into my forehead, I'm already 90 pounds and I have no hair. I'm not going to walk around for a year with a faucet sticking out of my forehead. And my mom goes, no, I think it's more like a spigot. goes, but uh, the people we know, the patients that have the shunt, they love it. Oh, they thank me for it because the pain is so much less. And when we do the operation because it's in the brain, there's no pain. And my brother goes, oh, that's because you give them lobotomies before you put the faucet in. And then my dad's looking up from his article on the plague. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so, um, as you can imagine, I got a little depressed that night. So, um, so Thursday night, um, I decided that I wanted to, because as you may know, the Pope wrote a book, and it came out on Thursday. So I had to be right there to get it. And also, I wanted to get away from my home. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so I get into my car, and I'm driving to Book Soup, and, you know, um, sadness, the new current trend in thinking, <laughs> um, <laughs> overtook me. And, um, and so I was like, and I had like no makeup on, a little lipstick, and and um, overalls, which are not a good choice for me. And, and I was just like, <laughs> looked terrible, but I thought I'd go to book soup. And then I started crying, and I started thinking, oh, why, why, why? And why can't it just end? I just don't want to go on. And if I am going to end, and I really am going to be over, why can't I smoke? Because who cares if I get lung cancer? I'm not going to live that long to even have lung cancer. So I'm going to buy some cigarettes. Yes, I'm going to buy a cigarette, and I'm going to smoke. It. And I'm going to go to book soup and I'm going to buy that book from the Pope. And so, um, so I'm sobbing and sobbing. So I get to book soup and I kind of wipe my eyes and they're all red and everything. So then I go in and then suddenly I'm kind of seized with a moment of embarrassment for some reason that I don't understand since I get embarrassed continually throughout the day with no problem apparently. Um, about asking for this book that the Pope wrote. So I come in and I kind of scan the, you know, bookstore out to see if there's, I was looking for like a big 10 foot cut out of the Pope, you know, with hands <laughs> out in the book. There wasn't one. And so um, I had to go to the information desk and I go, hi, um, I'm looking for a book that came out today. And the guy goes, oh, Jesus, right over there. And I'm thinking, the Pope's doing some business on these books. So I go over to this area and it's that Resnick Nicole Simpson book. So then I go back and I go, no, not the Resnick book, the Pope, the Pope's book. So I go over and I get the Pope's book, this book. And then I think, oh, well, I don't really want to just, you know, buy the Pope's book. So, um, I, so somehow I end up in the self-help section. Hmm. And, um, and I'm looking at titles like, can you live through this? And, you know, you can make it. And why do things happen to people? And stuff like that. And then finally I find this book. Um, oh, I wrote down the title. Oh, um. It was, um, oh, An Atheist Guide to Getting Through the Day. <laughs> there is a tomorrow. I thought, that's the book for me. So now I have The Atheist Guide to Getting Through the Day and the Pope's book. And uh, I'm thinking, all right, I think I'm covered. And there's not very many people in the bookstore, and I keep having to remind you how awful I look. And um, all of a sudden, now this is the most embarrassing thing I'll ever say on Cabaret. Without any warning, <laughs> I let out the biggest fart. <laughs> and I am not someone who has any problem with that. And I also find no humor in that kind of humor. And um, it's like a whistle has gone off at Book Soup. Like, it's just like, 
everyone looks up. <laughs> I, I don't know whether to rush out of that area or look around or... That's terrible. Okay, so right at that moment, <laughs> this guy comes up and goes, Julia? You heard my car, you recognized my vote. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> and, um, and I, I don't recognize him at all, and I go, um, hi, and he goes, oh, you don't recognize me, do you? Which, oh. and I go, oh, n uh, uh. and um, he goes, Marshall from the Groundlings, and I go, oh, Marshall, who I have no memory of, Marshall, oh, Marshall. Here I am, I'm getting the Pope's book, how are you? And he goes, say, so, um, hey, when's a Pat movie coming out? <laughs> <laughs> Big red eyes. Okay, um, uh, uh, okay, here's my standard response. We, they, uh, we, they open it in uh, Houston, Seattle, and uh, nobody <laughs> went or liked it, and, um, <laughs> They no, I so I don't know. <laughs> and he goes, "Oh, so it was a bomb." <laughs> and I go, "You know, I just because no one saw it, that means it's a bomb. It's a hit to me." And he goes, "Oh, oh, oh well, anyway, I'm sorry." And he goes, "So, um, hey, how's Steve?" <laughs> and I go, "Oh, uh, well, uh, you know, we got divorced this year." <laughs> Um, so, but, oh, amicably, and, um, really good friend, he's seeing someone, and, um, uh, we talk every day, and, oh, no, you guys were the cutest couple, <laughs> yes, well, and then, <laughs> then he goes, oh, is your brother still running the box office at the Groundlings? <laughs> and I go, well, no, <laughs> and he goes, oh, what's he have to, well, he's got lymph cancer, um, Stage four. <laughs> and so, well, I'm going to go pay for my books. And then, um, I, so I put back the atheist book because I really thought my book is really the agnostic's guide to getting through the day. You know, I have a little hope, not a lot. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so I go out. I go across the street. I buy a pack of cigarettes. So now I'm really going to enjoy myself. Um, I get into the car. Um, my family uses my car all the time to, for transportation purposes the normal use of a car. And um, <clears throat> and they hate cigarette smoke, like anyone should. Okay, so I roll down all the windows and I'm smoking and I'm actually starting to feel better because Marshall, it was just such a horrific situation that you could only feel better. You'd reach, you just had to go up. Okay, so, um <clears throat> so I'm smoking and I'm really happy and then finally I'm getting close to home so I throw the cigarette out and then I keep driving and all of a sudden I smell this really smoky smell. <laughs> and my back seat is on fire. <laughs> the cigarette has flown back into the car and is like had ignited my seats in the back. So I, I get out of the car and I like get it out and I throw the cigarette out and I'm feeling very like um, a girl who's just been smoking pot or something um, going into the house. Oh, which by the way, they prescribed pot for my brother. So my brother's also just smoking pot all around the house all the time. <laughs> okay, so, um, <coughs> so I go in and as soon as I get in, my mom goes, I want to use your car keys. I have to go to the store and get something. And I go, oh, oh, God, you can't believe what just happened to me. <laughs> I was driving down Sunset and this old man smoking a cigarette <laughs> threw it out of his car. And I noticed, because I thought, 
smoking is terrible. <laughs> and I got back, and the cigarette had landed in my car and burnt a hole in the back seat. And my mom's like, oh, that's the most horrible thing I've ever heard. And she's going, now, an old man was smoking next to you? And I'm like, yes, right next to me on, well, on the passenger. I had the passenger window open where he would be on the other side of the, because, yes. And I noticed him, that creep. And so <laughs> she goes, oh, that's so horrible. And so, you know, she takes the car and goes. And then the next morning, my dad and mom are coming out, and the cigarette that had was the culprit um, was on the, <laughs> the, the driveway. And I, uh, my dad looks down, and I go, well, there's a cigarette. And my dad picks it up, and he goes, there's lipstick on it. <laughs> and I go, oh. And my mom goes, you said it was an old man. And I go, or... Well, Sunset Boulevard, you know. <laughs> well, that was on Cabaret in October of 1994. Julia Sweeney's next turn at the microphone, this next one that we're going to hear, was three months later in January of 1995. My parents are staying with me. I know I say that every week since September, but... Okay, um, because uh, that, in fact, is practically the case. Anyway, um... My parents are here because I have a brother who's very ill with cancer, and he's, you know, I don't know if he's doing well or not anymore, but he is very, very ill. And so my parents are down, and they're, like any stressful situation, their annoying qualities, their personalities are heightened because it's a crisis situation, and it's made even more difficult for me because I can't yell at them about it because we are in a crisis. And it's like, how could I really scream at my mother for talking incessantly, um, you know, when her son is so very ill? So Wednesday night, I go out, and, um, and my brother is like really, he's, you know, like he weighs 120 pounds, and he's 5'11", and he's you know, he's taking lots of drugs and we don't know if it's for the cancer and we don't know if we should yell at him about the drugs, but then he has cancer, so you don't really want to get down on someone at that moment for that. Anyway, okay. <laughs> this is just so sad. I'm going to try my fucking hardest to make this funny. All right. So I go see House Guest because, um, <laughs> because I'm going to see Phil Hartman next week and I want to have seen it, although now I probably shouldn't have seen it. I kept thinking all the way home, what are the scenes I can say you were funny in? Which scene? <laughs> all right. Um, and he's a very funny guy, so it's too bad. But I guess it's making money. And the whole time I was watching, I was thinking, Pat doesn't get a national release and House Guest gets a national release. <laughs> <sighs> all right. So this is my Wednesday. So I get home from House Guest. I walk in the house. My brother is laid out on the couch. Literally, like, he's laid out. Like, he's laying there with his hands on his chest with blankets over him, and he's just like, like, this, like, has Mike died while I was at house guest? Has someone come rushing up to me and saying, we don't know which coroner to call? Like, I, I go, oh, Mike. And he's like, I'm feeling better. And I go, oh, you look great. And, um, <laughs> and I go in, and my mom intercepts, and she goes, oh, hi, I'm so glad you're here because I was wondering how house guest was because I like Sinbad, and I like him because I watched him on TV, and the TV in the living room doesn't coordinate with the cable anymore 
and I don't know how to change that because I want to watch a movie later and the movie's on a video and I don't even know how to put the video into the machine and I was going to try <laughs> but I was making some soup and the soup started boiling over and your father's too drunk to deal with it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I go into the kitchen. My dad's standing in the kitchen with his drink. He goes, hey, how was house guest? Because I, I like that Phil Hartman. And I go, oh, you know, it's okay. And then my mom goes around and she goes, there's no cat food. There's no cat food. And I notice that all the cats are like, meow, 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 under my feet. <laughs> oh, also, the other thing is having your parents in your house, if they're like my parents, means having every available audio device going in every room. <laughs> the TV is on in every room of the house that there can be a TV. And if there isn't a TV, the radio's going on in that room. So there's just this sound everywhere. And then, meow, 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 cat. <laughs> So I go, uh, there's no camp food? And she goes, I was going to go to the store and get some, but then I didn't know what kind because you said the Friskies had too much fat in it. <laughs> so I go, okay, um, I'll go to Pavilions now. It's you know midnight, but I'll go and get some good food. So I leave, and, you know, thank God, it was three for 89 cents. It was a big sale. And, you know, there's nothing like being a single woman in her 30s buying, you know, $15 of cat food at midnight. That's a really good feeling. <laughs> so <clears throat> I buy my cat food, and then I get home. And in the meantime, my dad goes, the cats were so hungry that I gave them the dry food they hate, and they won't eat it. And I go, oh, and I look down, and the bowls are filled with this dry food they hate that I don't know why I have. So I go, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to throw that out. And then my dad goes, no, we're I'll, I'll save that dry food for later. I have a Tupperware bowl out for it to put in the dry cat food. And he's got one side of the cat food bowl and I've got the other and I'm going, no, 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 I'm just going to throw it away. And he's going, no, 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 I'm just going to put it in the Tupperware. And I'm going, no, 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 I'll just, I really, I am really willing to just toss, you know, caution to the wind and throw this cat food away. And he's going, no, no, no. And then, of course, we pull it apart. Cat food goes flying all over the kitchen there's little pieces of cat food everywhere landing in the soup this boiling over and then my dad leans down and he's picking it up and putting it pieces of cat food with the hair and oh. and then at that moment so I go okay I'll just pick up my messages and then I pick up my messages and I have a message from my gynecologist at 9 30 p.m saying um call us immediately we think you have a tumor <laughs> But then the next, me but and while I'm getting that message, my mom's standing there going, um, do you know about a place called House of Blues? <laughs> and I'm going, I'm trying to listen to my messages. <laughs> and then the next message is from him going, oh, I'm terribly sorry. We've mixed up your results with someone else. <laughs> And so then I hang up the phone and I'm going, yes, I've heard of the House of Blues. And she goes, I love blues and gospel. I just love that. I love that music because I just love Gershwin. <laughs> I don't even anymore, like 10 years ago, I would have said, Gershwin isn't gospel or blues. But I, now I just go, oh, I know the blues and gospel with the Gershwin. Go to the House of Blues. They got it. <laughs> so... I get the cat food out, I break it up, I put it down, the cats are happy, the phone starts ringing, my mom's going, do you think House of Blues would be under nightlife in the yellow pages? <laughs> I don't think there's a nightlife section in the yellow pages, but look all you want! <laughs> and 
it's my sister calling from Japan, and she's like this. Hi, I'm so glad you answered the phone. Because mom and dad want me to pay them that $48 to the National Geographic subscriptions before they get the bill on their credit card, which I don't think is right. So I have written out a check for them for $100. And I'm going to send it to them with a note saying, I don't want any more dealings with you. And I just go, Meg, I cannot talk to you right now. And she goes, oh, fine. And I'm just thinking of her in Japan crying about these fucking National Geographic subscriptions that no one even wants. I, by the way, am one of the recipients. So, <laughs> you know, isn't it great that I have to, like, get the magazine and know all these trauma and subterfuge that goes on getting the subscription to National Geographic? Oh, then I realized the most fucked up thing I was thinking this week is that I've got to get over somehow because apparently I refuse to go to therapy. But anyway, um... As I've always had this thing where I, like my mom, it started with my mom because she'd say, uh, like, obviously our tastes and everything were different. Like, I would never have decorated the way they did. And, you know, all of you, I'm sure, feel the same way. But we'd look at furniture and I'd go, well, I like the dark wood one. And she'd like, of course, the modern. And, um, and she'd always go, well, when you get your house, you can have what you want in it. Okay, so that was her big thing. Or I'd go, why are you, you know, yelling at Jimmy, my youngest brother, this way? And she'd say, well, when you have a child, you can treat him the way you want. But I'm going to... Uh. So I had this mental thing. Like, I always am trying to be um, better than some experience in my past. You know, like, it's like I'm always trying to have a better house to show, like, my parents are going to learn how to raise kids better because of the way I treat my cats? I don't think so. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Um, but I realized the most f***ed up thing is, um, oh, oh, this is just one other thing. So my brother, they don't know, now the cancer, like, they keep taking tests and the cancer gets less and less, but he seems to be deteriorating anyway, and now they think it's the drugs. So my mom keeps going, we need to do an intervention with him on the drugs. And he's not going to listen to me, and he's not going to listen to your father, so we've decided you should do it. And I'm like, well, can I do an intervention on his answering machine? Because I don't have time to really run over there and do this intervention right at this moment. But I realized I was walking around this week thinking, you know, when I have cancer, I am going to act so much better. Well, recently, on the telephone, Julia Sweeney told me that a few months after she made that comment out on Cabaret, when she herself was diagnosed with cancer, people who had been at the club that night would come up to her and remind her that she'd said that. She viewed it as a really good case of beware what you wish for, you know. Coming up, act two of our program, Julia Sweeney's own cancer, when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. And most weeks on our program, we choose some subject and invite a wide variety of writers and performers to take a whack at that subject with original stories, mini documentaries, monologues, found tapes, whatever. But today we're breaking format, trying something different. And if you're just tuning in, what we're doing is that we are devoting an entire hour to these unusual recordings, sort of part comedy, part diary, part personal reportage about cancer. This is uh, Julia Sweeney recorded at Uncabaret in Los Angeles. We've now arrived at Act 2 of our program. Uh, in this act, Julia gets diagnosed with cancer herself. 
And one thing that's interesting about these tapes is that once Julia Sweeney actually gets cancer, the stories get less dark. They are less tragic. There is less trouble in them. This next tape is from May of 1995. This is actually the worst sound quality of any of the um, tapes we're going to play for you today. And um, just one quick word for um, public radio listeners who perhaps do not watch as much television as as many Americans do. Um, SNL, she refers to SNL. And it does not refer to the failed thrifts that that scourged our nation during the uh, 80s and early 90s. SNL in this context is Saturday Night Live. So like about a month ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. Hold for laugh. All right. Um, (laughs) I wake up debating how and if I should bring that up. But the thing is, it's not life-threatening, and I'm totally fine. And, you know, in a way, I'm kind of happy for the experience. But my parents, who were staying with me way too long, and at the tail end of when they were going to be with me, then I, you know, got cervical cancer. And so, of course, they wanted to stay longer, which is the last thing I wanted was my parents to stay f***ing longer with me. And then I kept thinking, how can I lie about my, you know, cervical cancer to my parents? And I'm like 35. How can I, can, can I just have cancer on my own? Anyway, and so, and so I had to get this radical hysterectomy, which now that I'm in this whole cancer thing, you know, radical doesn't mean far out in the medical world. I just want to <laughs> let you know. <laughs> anyway, um, and so then my mom, I, they just make me more nervous than calm. Like, I really have friends that would be there and make it more calm experience. But <laughs> my mom goes, I am going to be with you for every doctor appointment and every surgery you're going to have. And then I found myself saying, like, my friends who've had hysterectomies didn't have to have their moms with them. <laughs> they had their hysterectomies on their own. <laughs> and I just realized how f***ing weird that is. But anyway, um, and I feel, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have chosen to have a hysterectomy, I guess, but... Um, but I kind of feel about my reproductive organs like a bicycle that I've had in the garage, this really great bike that I've just never used. <laughs> and, um, but I want to, you know, but I just never had time. And, um, and, <laughs> and it's a really good bike, you know, and it's in the garage and I haven't really been maintaining it or it's all rusty now and everything. <laughs> but it's there, you know, and I bought it and I, you know, it's there. I have a garage for it, you know? And, um, and now I feel like fate is saying to me, okay, we're taking away your bicycle. You can never ride a bike again. And so then you think, God, I was really going to ride that bike. But it's not like, you know, the end of the world. It's like, well, you know, there's a lot of other things. You could skate. Or, you know, well, I can take the metaphor forever. But anyway, um, <laughs> but young men, especially at SNL, these young 22-year-old riders they hire at SNL, they would call and go, I heard that you having a hysterectomy. I go, yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of other, I mean, it's not that, I mean, I don't feel that sad about it. And they go, that is the most tragic thing. These f***ing guys, you know, like, I go, that's right, because now my worth as a woman has been taken away from me. And they go, mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't even realize I'm being sarcastic. And then I would meet women. Women aren't that much better who would have these big new age solutions. They go, you know, my friend had cervical cancer and they told her that she had to have a hysterectomy. And she drank carrot juice every day and did yoga. And now she's had seven children. <laughs> and I'm like, get me to the hospital. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, I'll just do two little more cancer bits before I'm done. 
okay, so I'm in the hospital, and they saved my ovaries, which I guess is a good thing. I'm learning all about these biological things because the ovaries are the things that make you lubricate when you're aroused, which, by the way, is a very important thing. And, um, <laughs> and you know, if I wanted to have a child surrogately, I could have it. And um, so they, that was fine. They saved those. And, um, but then they didn't know because I had to have radiation if it was going to get hit. Oh, it's all uh, So they moved my ovaries nine inches up from their normal spot. <laughs> And, uh, and then they said, <clears throat> well, you know, if you're really concerned about having a kid, you know, the surrogate, we can harvest 12 eggs now um, and we can freeze them for you. And I said, oh, you know, uh, okay. And they go, but the problem is you have to have the sperm with them in order to freeze them. They can't just be frozen eggs. They have to be fertilized eggs. So I go, oh, okay. <laughs> and then they go, Okay, so are you like married? No, and I go, are you going out with somebody? Well, kinda, but you know. <laughs> Hi, on Friday, um, before we see French Kiss, could you just fertilize twelve eggs? <laughs> and um, <laughs> so um, you know, I know it might not work out. We're just kind of dating, but. <laughs> so I go, well, how many sperm different sperm people could I have? And um. And they go, well, you know, the startup costs are kind of high, but you could have five, you know, or six. So I could have two eggs per guy. So I thought, okay, so now I feel like I have this dance card with 12 eggs on it. It's like, if you're nice enough to me, you can have one of my eggs. <laughs> anyway, then I just decided that it's just too weird. <laughs> then, so I didn't do that. So then the next thing, and this happened only two days ago, I went into my radiation doctor, and they had to do all these x-rays and MRIs to make sure that my ovaries were out of the way of the radiation. And they cut, you know, my fallopian tubes and my uterus is out and all that stuff. So they come in and they go, we have some bad news. Um, we've, uh, we've lost one of your ovaries. <laughs> and I go, oh, it died? And they go, no, we, we've lost it. <laughs> and they go, you what? And they go, we can't find it. I go, you can't, they moved them up 10 inches, aren't they like here or something? And they go, well, one is there. He goes, you know, sometimes ovaries, when they're cut off from their responsibilities, go traveling. And I go, that ovary, so caught up with a fallopian tube, his whole life responsible to that damn uterus. He goes, oh, it might show up and, you know, it just could just go floating through someday somewhere. I go, am I going to, like, cough in this ovary? Should I? All right, that was May of 1995. Uh, this next uh, moment is a little further into her treatment, a month later. And uh, just a quick warning. Some of the language here may not be suitable for younger listeners. All right. Oh, I had my vagina tattooed. All right. Um, <laughs> it's true. Some people say, you know... I love Tom. Mine says, aim the beams here. <laughs> All right. No, um, <laughs> I, have, um, I have a little cancer. <laughs> and um, so I had to have a hysterectomy, and now I'm having radiation. Everything seems to be fine, and, you know, I'm on the gazillionth percentile of making it. And blah, 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 blah. But it doesn't mean that I don't have to have eight weeks of radiation. And um, so uh, right now I'm in the fourth week. And um, so... When you get radiation, you have to get a tattoo on the area that you're getting radiated. And so mine's kind of a really sensitive spot. <laughs> and so I'm a little scared, you know. And, um, but they're saying, oh, no, you know, it'll hurt, but who cares? Or something like that. Don't worry, it'll hurt a lot. 
And um, so it's kind of, you know, so I had to lay there, you know, with my pants off, and then they brought in a tattoo artist. Like, you know, there's a person who tattoos you. All right. And um, so this guy, at first he was kind of smiling at me, like, a little too much. Like, maybe he recognized me or something from SNL, but I wasn't sure, and I'm not going to really bring it up. And he's not saying anything. And so, um, but he's, he gave me that kind of look, like, hi. <laughs> And I was like, does everyone who gets radiation get that look? But anyway, and, um, and so then, you know, he's tattooing my vagina. And so, and then, you know, and so we're spending some time together. And, um, and his, his, he's way down there doing the, you know, and, and I, I just find it so funny that it was hard not to laugh, but you can't laugh because it has to be a really specific spot, you know? But then I keep thinking, my vagina is getting a tattoo. And, um, and then all of a sudden he's going like this and then he goes, I think the best one is when Pat went to the barber. You know? I'm like, yeah, that was a good one too. I think the kicker is now that Pat has cervical cancer, we know what to do. All right. All right. Oh, so the. Oh, I, this is so personal. You can't even believe I'm telling you guys this, but I guess that's the whole point of the cabaret, so I'll just, well, even though it'll make you uncomfortable. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the first half is external radiation, where they beam you from the outside. And then the second half that I start next week is internal radiation. Think about it. Okay, so I call it the, the dildo of radiation. And in fact, I insist on referring to it as the dildo of radiation, and the doctors get really upset every because I go, when do we start the dildo of radiation? And so I had to go in and get measured, and they had to make the cil cylinder that fit exactly me and everything. And um, oh, so then I go, so this dildo of radiation, will it be vibrating? <laughs> And then the doctor goes, actually, it will be vibrating. And I said, it will? And then it's like this, oh, it makes it sick because the, the light in this doctor's eyes when he talks about how this is the cutting edge of technology, it scares me because I really kind of feel like uh, that's kind of the point of it is that they get to do this to me. And, um, but, and you know, when they go like, yes, you really need that because this is the cutting edge of technology and hardly anyone's gotten this and we're really working on it. <laughs> Do I really need it? Anyway, and um, so I have to go. And then, um, so then last week they're trying to prepare me for it and everything. And they go, well, you know, it lasts three hours. <gasps> oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> so I go, three hours? And they said, yes. And I said, oh. And also, I, just, I won't get into details, but the other orifices in that area will also be filled with other instruments for three hours. So then I go, oh, and then they said... You have an option. We can send you to the cancer therapist at Cedar sinai to learn visualization techniques, or we can give you an IV of Valium. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... Um, <laughs> They really were trying to push the visualization exercises, but you know, I am very good at visualizing. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I'm an actress and I'm like, visualization is my hobby and my expertise. <laughs> and um, let me just, I think when it comes to medical procedures, you know, an IV of Valium is going to work a lot better <laughs> than thinking about an ocean. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is another sick thing that. I do. <laughs> it's not funny, only sick. Um, I have this thing 
wear the clothes in my closet don't know that I have cancer. And if I haven't worn them since before when I found out I had cancer, I have to tell them when I put it, my clothes on. <laughs> so I'll, like, I'll put on a dress and I'll think, oh, this dress doesn't even know. <laughs> and so then I'll put on the dress and I'll think, oh, dress, don't you realize what's happened to me? <laughs> and then the dress goes, that's terrible, but you'll be okay. Okay, well, that was June 4th, 1995. Not long after that, um, Julia Sweeney returned to Uncabaret. She was getting her treatment still. And she was getting her treatment at one hospital, and her brother was getting treated at another hospital. And her case apparently was this very rare type of cervical cancer. And it turned out that the one doctor in this world who was studying this particular type of cancer happened to be located at his hospital, not at hers. And so at some point, slides of her cells were shipped over to his hospital, and then they were going to do some procedure on her, and so she had to get the slides back so they could do this procedure, and uh, she offered to go and fetch the slides herself. I, you know, I didn't know where I was going. All I knew is his name was Dr. Fu. <laughs> And so I go over and, you know, it's not really part of the hospital where the research is done. It's in this other building and, and it's all restricted areas. And I just kept going through doors and doors where people were wearing more and more green things, you know, and, and more people had masks and stuff. And I was like knocking on doors and I was, and I, everyone was so confused about what I wanted. And I'd have to say, hi, I'm looking for, you know, the Julia Sweeney cancer slides. And they'd all go, oh, for who? who? You know, and I'd say, for Julia Sweeney, me. And they go, oh, and then, then finally they, I found this Dr. Fu's door and I, I, I knocked on it and this little, you know, Asian man opens the door and it's like literally out of a movie. Like there's like books to the ceiling and cobwebs and like a little microscope and, and he goes, yes. And I said, yes, um, I hear that you have uh, slides, the Julius Sweeney cancer slides. And um, he says, yes. And I go, um, yes, I'm coming here to pick them up. And he said, oh, what project are you working on? And I said, oh, I, the Julia Sweeney project. <laughs> and um, he said, no, 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 I mean, but what research area are you in? And I said, well, no, I mean, you know, like, I'm Julia Sweeney. And he said, what? And he said, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm the, those slides, that's me. Those, those slides are me. And I want them. Give them back. <laughs> and, um, and he goes, uh, what, you're the person these slides? He goes, yeah, they're right here. He picks up the slides. And I go, yeah. And, and, and he goes, you're this person? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, my God. <laughs> He goes, I've been studying, getting grants to study this special kind of cancer for 20 years, and only 50 women in the world have been diagnosed with this special kind of cancer, and you're one of the ones I'm studying, and I've never met in the flesh any of the women that have ever had this cancer except for you. And I said, oh, and he's like, oh, please come in and sit down. And I said, oh, and, and, um, and he said, well, how does it feel to have this cancer? And I said... Well, you know, I actually have no symptoms. You know, it's like kind of hilarious that I just have no symptoms. It seems like all of the problems have been coming from the cure of this, but not from the actual cancer. <laughs> and um, and uh, he goes, oh, you know, there's only 50 women in the world and none of them have died from it. And I go, oh, you know, you can always hope. <laughs> and, um, and I go, oh, great, you know, and... <laughs> And he goes, oh, and, and, he, and he goes, oh, you know, he wanted to know if I'd been on birth control pills because that's how what he thinks it was related to, which I had. And um, I go, oh, you know, we're, you know, he's asking me, what are your habits? You know, and I go, well, I like to run and ski. <laughs> he be people who run and ski and take birth control pills get this cancer. 
<laughs> and um, and um, and then he goes, oh, and then he goes, well, can I take you out for some coffee or something? And I said, yeah. And then we went and had this coffee. And he's these big eyes, and just was so happy to be with me, like meeting this woman who had the cancer. Okay, well. <laughs> Then I found out a few weeks later, after the slides went back, that I didn't have that cancer. I had a different kind of really rare cervical cancer, but not that specific kind. And um, I don't think they ever really told that guy because this week he called me up and he said, hey, how you doing and everything. And I said, oh, I'm fine. I did all the surgeries and the radiation. I'm feeling great. And he said, oh, that's so great. And then I realized that I was too embarrassed to tell him I didn't have his cancer. <laughs> so I, I go, yeah, and he goes, well, I'm really glad, you know, no one who's had that cancer has died, you know, they've had to go through hell, but they haven't died, and I was like, and then I just had to play into it, and then I realized I'm so codependent that I didn't want him to think that I didn't have the cancer he was studying. <laughs> I didn't pretend. <laughs> so sick. Okay, all these stories that we've been hearing began in 1994, and finally, in the July of 1995, Julia Sweeney took the stage at Uncabaret to announce... Um, I don't have cancer anymore. <laughs> I only say this because... I don't know if anybody's been here with other sets where I talked about it, but um, I had a... I got a little cancer. And, um, and I had, you know, I did surgery and I did <coughs> radiation. And um, my last radiation was on Wednesday. And so um, now I can't say I have cancer anymore, which I have to say, I will totally cop to the fact that I'm kind of missing that because I just loved... Not necessarily doing, but having that moment where I could say, I don't know if you've heard, but. <laughs> but now I can say I'm in remission. I guess that's the term. Although no one, no, no doctors even said that to me. They just said, all right, you did enough. See you later. <laughs> I said, don't you mean to tell me I'm in remission? <laughs> okay, so... So, <laughs> so on Wednesday, I had to have my last radiation, and uh, it's like this kind of horrible ordeal that lasts three hours and is very <clears throat> personally invasive into certain orifices of your body. Imagine. And, um, and then, oh, see, I'd been hurt from my surgery. This is how sick I am. I would, and, and I had horrible, you know, abdominal surgery, you know, and, and it was like incredibly painful and tubes coming out of me. Ugh. And they gave me like Percocet and codeine and everything, and I would be in excruciating pain and not take my pain pills to save them for a day when I'd enjoy them more. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally. <laughs> 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 this is when my parents were staying with me and I'd be going, <gasps> and my mom would go, take the coating, and I'd go, <laughs> there will be a day when mixed with a margarita, I'll be so much happier. <laughs> Well, Julia Sweeney survived her cancer, and she's turned these monologues from Un Cabaret into a one-woman show. It's called God Said Ha. It's now at the Coronet Theater in Los Angeles. And apparently it's a big, big hit. In the fall, the show's going to move to New York City, and Quentin Tarantino is planning on filming God Said Ha to release as a feature film. So keep your eyes open for that. Remember, public radio is where you hear tomorrow's stars today. But not very often. <laughs> anyway, Julia Sweeney's brother, 
Well, Judy Sweeney uh, came, came out of this uh, fine and alive. Her brother actually died of cancer two weeks after she was diagnosed. She never talked about his death or his last days at Uncabaret. Clearly, some tragedies were just, you know, too sad to be turned into comedy. But we thought we would end our, our program today with a story from January of 1995. This is uh, a tape from before she knew that she had cancer. And um, when this was recorded, her brother was still alive. And her family was really struggling. So anyway, <laughs> oh, this is not even funny. Okay, I'll just tell it really quick. Um, I went to another audition, and I felt like it went, it was actually a meeting. And I felt like it went really well, and it was like, wow, this, this possibility, and this is great. And I'm driving back from Santa Monica feeling so happy for the first time in a really long time because my parents are living with me. And I'm so happy. And so I walk in the door, and as I walk in the door, I hear my mother yelling at my brother. You're drunk, that's what it is. <laughs> like, not like some sort of awful Arthur Miller play or something. It's like, it's just sort of like, so then I come in and, um, and I go, hi. And she goes, how was your meeting? And I go, it was good. And she goes, well, your brother's been drinking. <laughs> and he is D-R-U-N-K. <laughs> and then my brother, oh, this story is too sad. I have to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's just say this. I end up hearing about... My brother leaves the room and starts smoking pot in the other room. And um, <laughs> and then um, and then my mom's like going on and on, and she doesn't know how to tell stories correctly, and I know you're thinking it's a familial trait. But um, <laughs> she'll say, oh, I have to tell you the most important thing. I went to pavilions, and I ran into this couple from the Balkans, and your father was reading that book, and then I couldn't find the change for the tan and then the car, and so... <laughs> and I, I just go, oh, <laughs> When you can't find your change and you meet someone from the Balkans at the store, and why are you talking to people at pavilions? Okay. <clears throat> so... I just walk out of the house and go to the office where my dad is. And my dad goes, oh, hi. Um, I just, I borrowed this book off your shelf, The Balkan Ghosts, which is all um, travel essays written by this reporter about his, you know, um, travels in the Balkans. And those Balkan people, they're crazy. Did you know about, you know, like Adam the Impaler who impaled people? And and I go, oh, no. And and then he, he says, oh, and it reminded me of this other book Rebecca West wrote, this great travelogue that was written in 1937 about her travels in the Balkans. And it really foretold a lot of stuff. And do you know that every major war has started in the Balkans since the... Uh, we have this nice little conversation. He says, and he's like, and how was your meeting? And I go, oh, it was really good. He goes, oh, I'm so glad. And so <laughs> then I come back in the house and goes, I need to talk to you in the bedroom. <laughs> so I go, oh, I better go quick because this is so sad. Okay, so I go into the bedroom and she goes, your father is driving me crazy and I'm leaving him, but I'm not leaving your house and neither is he. <laughs> that mean? She goes, it means I am not sleeping in the guest room with him anymore. I need another place to sleep. And I'm thinking, okay, the brother from Washington is sleeping on the sofa in my office. I'm sleeping like in the dining room. <laughs> the brother's in my bedroom. My parents are in the guest room. And I just go, married people who visit me must sleep together. 
I do not have enough beds for people to break up while they're visiting me. You must overcome your feelings and just sleep in the same bed. Go in after he's fallen asleep and get up before he wakes up and don't touch him in the night, but you got to stay in the room! So anyway, so mom sleeps on the couch in the living room. Dad's in the guest room. So we're all in different places. And so then at five in the morning, I notice the TV pops on. And in a lonely place is starting at five in the morning. <laughs> Irony. Okay, so um, <laughs> and my mom sits up and she's going, what's this? And there must have been something where I programmed the TV to type something. And it, uh. Anyway, and I go, she goes, she yells from the living room. She goes, Julie, there's a movie on about a lonely people. What is it? And I go, it's like five in the morning. So I go, oh, um, in a lonely place. Yeah, Nicholas Ray and uh, great film noir, Humphrey Bogart. And she goes, you know, he was a drunk in real life, too. And I go, oh. <laughs> and Gloria Graham. And, uh, anyway, so slowly the whole family gets up. And then all of a sudden it's me, my two brothers, and my mom and dad. And we all watch In a Lonely Place. This is yesterday morning from 5 to 7 a.m. <laughs> Julia Sweeney at Uncabaret in Los Angeles. Well, today's program was produced by Nancy Updike and myself, with Elise Spiegel, Doris Wilbur, and Peter Clowney. Contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Paul Tuff. Music today by the mysterious Rumpity Rattles, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. Special thanks today to Gregory Miller and Beth Lapidus of Uncabaret. If this program has made you curious about Uncabaret, you can listen to material from Uncabaret or they sell a CD. You can do that, all that on the World Wide Web at this address, www.uncabaret.com. This program uh, that you're listening to right now comes from WBEZ in Chicago. Funding for our program has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. We'll be back next week with more tales of this American life. No, I think it's more like a spigot. I'm Ira Glass. Thank you.